2 a.m. Welcome back to the 2 a.m. Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. Today, we are absolutely talking about books that made us stay up late because we are talking about mysteries, my absolute favorite kind of staying up until 2 a.m. book. I adore good mysteries, and the three books we're talking about today were all mysteries that reminded me of why I love mysteries so much. Oh, and um, by the way, <laughs> apologies if my voice is sounding a little rough. I have cold slash like pollen allergies, and I know that my voice has a ridiculous amount of like things going wrong with it all the time but you know hey it's a it's an organic instrument it's a biological instrument i think i think that's how i've seen people describe the voice before so if something's going wrong with it it's just because it's uh it's all organic baby <laughs> okay that's a really weird way of describing it anyway getting back to the topic on hand Sorry if my voice sounds a little weird, that's why. Proceeding. The three mysteries we're talking about today are not just mysteries I enjoyed, but they also have something else in common, which is that they all operate in some way on a meta level. Now, I think that mysteries are such an interesting genre for experimenting with this kind of meta-commentary, and here's why. The modern-day mystery genre as it exists today probably originates with Edgar Allan Poe, but obviously the first real phenomenon in the mystery world that made the mystery genre the phenomenon it is today is, of course, the character of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is still a bit of a phenomenon today, thanks to the fact that Hollywood and the BBC love to dredge up the IP every couple of years. But what most people probably don't realize is that while Sherlock Holmes is definitely the first recognizable modern-day detective, the Sherlock Holmes stories as mysteries aren't really what we would recognize as modern-day mysteries. I grew up reading and rereading Sherlock Holmes stories, and part of the appeal is that the stories are mostly narrated. I say mostly because it's not entirely true, but we would be here literally all day if I got into talking about Sherlock Holmes lore, which I will do someday in a separate video slash episode slash whatever, because I do know entirely too much about the original Sherlock Holmes stories, but today is not that day. Anyway, the Sherlock Holmes stories are mostly narrated by Dr. Watson, who is just as in the dark as we are about what's going on. And that makes it really cool when Sherlock Holmes finally explains what's been going on. However, the flip side to that is, you know, we don't know what's going on. And there is no way for us to know what's going on because 
Watson never notices all of the stuff that helps Sherlock Holmes reach the solution. So while Sherlock Holmes is the first modern day detective, I would say that the first modern day mysteries actually come from Agatha Christie. Her books help to usher in what's called the golden age of mysteries and in particular, murder mysteries. Sherlock Holmes did obviously solve murders, but actually a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories don't involve murder or even death. And beyond the content of the mysteries, Agatha Christie was one of the first mystery authors to involve the reader. When you read an Agatha Christie mystery or a mystery by one of the many other golden age mystery authors, there's a definite possibility that you'll be able to figure out what's going on and who the killer is. And so the modern day mystery, as well as the modern day mystery reading experience, can probably be traced back to Agatha Christie and the golden age of mystery novels. So at this point, you're probably beginning to see where I'm going with this. From the beginning of what I would consider the modern mystery genre, the reader's experience has been a big part of the craft of mystery writing. And in particular, there's always been this delicate balance between outsmarting the reader while at the same time giving the reader enough information to potentially figure out the mystery. So there has always been a meta element to the craft of mystery writing. I think that almost every genre goes through a phase where writers experiment with getting meta. And I think that for the mystery genre in particular, there are a lot of exciting possibilities that can come out of that kind of trend. And that's why I'm really excited to be doing this episode today, because we are going to be talking about three mysteries that go very meta in some unique and unexpected ways. Before we get into it, I do need to give my usual spoiler warning, my spoiler alert. Mysteries, in my opinion, are definitely best when you know nothing about them. So even though I'm not going to spoil any major plot twists and I'm not even really going to be going in depth on the actual stories themselves, however, I would definitely recommend reading the books before listening to this episode if these are books that you are at all interested in reading. And the books we'll be going over today are The Plot, The Woman in the Library, and The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. So there's your spoiler warning, you have been warned. So with that binding legal language, no I'm just kidding, um, with that out of the way, let's get into it. The first book we'll be discussing today is The Plot by Jean Humph Corlitz, and I'm sorry if that's pronounced wrong. This book is technically not a mystery, it's a literary thriller, but I'm including it in this episode because while it is a thriller, it does have a central mystery and... It's also relevant to our discussion for reasons that will become clear in just a moment. It's also a fairly recent book. It was published in 2021. 
So the central conceit, the central premise of the book, and this is not a spoiler, by the way, it's literally in the blurb. But anyway, the central premise is that we have our protagonist, Jacob Finch Bonner, who is a washed up author who is teaching creative writing. Name a better cliche. <laughs> it is a bit of a cliche, but I, I do love it. I'm one of those people who actually like loves stories about their own profession to an extent. So anyway, uh, Jacob has this student who has this incredible idea for a plot and then the student dies. So Jacob decides to quote unquote steal the plot. But then when the book becomes a hit, Jacob discovers that his life is in danger because someone knows that he stole the plot. And then the rest of the book is standard thriller stuff as Jacob tries to figure out what's going on and who cares so much about this particular plot. So that's the premise. But what's so fascinating to me is this idea that's repeated time and again throughout the book, which is that there exist or there might exist plots that are so good, so explosive that any author can make them work. Any author, no matter what, would have an instant bestseller on their hands if the plot was good enough. And this idea is particularly interesting to consider in the context of today's discussion, which is mysteries and mystery novels. Now, plots and plot twists and red herrings and all of those good things are obviously important in a mystery. Plots are what drive a mystery, and without a good plot, you really can't have a good mystery. Or can you? There definitely exists, especially in literary fiction, but in other genres as well, this often not so subtle disdain for the art of writing mysteries and thrillers. It's not dissimilar to the way that a lot of people think writing romance works. A lot of people seem to think that writing romance is essentially like creating two hot people and making them kiss like they're Barbie dolls. And I'm going to go on the record here to say that that's not romance, that's erotica. Anyway, similarly, a lot of people, and those people include authors who don't write mysteries, those people seem to think that writing mysteries involves coming up with a plot twist that nobody reading it could ever guess and that's all it takes. And while I'm not going to deny that crazy plot twists and unexpected murders and sinister secrets aren't an important part of the mystery reading experience, I am going to point out a few things that may contradict this idea just a bit. First, let's revisit Sherlock Holmes for just a moment. I mentioned earlier that he was the first modern detective, and that phrasing was very intentional. The Sherlock Holmes short stories and novels, four novels, 56 short stories, I knew that off the top of my head, I am a real fan, you see? Anyway, they're great. Some of them are mystery story all-time classics, but... 
There is a good reason that we remember the character, Sherlock Holmes, and not any of those specific stories. And that's because what brought me and millions of other people back to these stories time and again was not the stories themselves. We came back for the sarcastic, cynical, drug addict and musician and genius Sherlock Holmes. And yes, canonically, he is a drug addict, which if I ever get around to making my Sherlock Holmes uh, standalone content, which I do want to do someday, I will be going into detail about because it's actually like a really important part of the Sherlock Holmes canon, which I feel like not that many people know. But anyway, besides the detective himself, Sherlock Holmes. I also personally really liked Watson a lot when I was a kid. I found him very reassuring and sensible and dad-like, I think. And in general, he's just a really good foil for Sherlock Holmes. But my point is, what sold the Sherlock Holmes stories wasn't the plot, it was always the characters. And you can really see that when you examine some of the most famous Sherlock Holmes stories. Arguably, two of the most famous Sherlock Holmes stories are A Scandal in Bohemia and The Final Problem. And not to start any arguments with my fellow Sherlock Holmes fangirls, but neither of those stories are particularly good stories if you're considering them purely for the mystery aspects. The reason we remember a scandal in Bohemia is because of the iconic Irene Adler, the woman who outwitted Sherlock Holmes. The reason we remember the final problem is because of Professor Moriarty, the final boss of the Sherlock Holmes universe. Although, if we're being super technical here, Sherlock Holmes did continue to have adventures after Moriarty died, so... Um, personally, I found that a bit of a <laughs> bit underwhelming, to be honest. But anyway, not important. What's important is that sometimes it is the characters who sell the mystery. That's why we have Sherlock Holmes or Nancy Drew or countless other famous detectives. And also, I think that sometimes people forget that when you have a mystery, the setting can also be an important part of what makes people pick it up. Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, for example, is so effective because it's set on an island in a mansion and it's storming and people can't leave and they're all dying and there's nothing they can do about it. It's spooky and surreal, and if the writing style were a little different, just a tiny bit more dramatic, it could honestly count as a horror novel. And more recently, you have Lucy Foley's The Guest List, which honestly has a pretty similar setting with people on a stormy island with no way to get back to shore, and all of these people hate each other, etc. And it's a setting that gets reused because it's so good at evoking these primal emotions of fear and anger and despair. Honestly, I wouldn't even say that the guest list has any huge plot twists or dramatic incidents, but I really do think it's that setting that made it such an immensely successful mystery when it came out, you know, a few years ago. 
So all of that is to say that I think this premise that there exists a plot so good that it doesn't matter who writes it or how they write it, I think that that premise is built off of this kind of contemptuous idea that mystery and thriller readers are only ever interested in what happens and not who it happens to or why it happens to them or where it happens. And I find that idea a bit disturbing, if I'm being honest here, because I just don't think it's true. Mystery writers have to put in a lot of effort to craft all aspects of their mysteries, whether that's the plot or the characters or the setting. And sometimes I think that while the plot is obviously important, it might be even more important to put your work into the characters and setting and motivation once you've come up with a fairly decent plot. Because let's be honest for a minute here, right? There is a definite limit to how twisty or suspenseful or surprising you can make a mystery. If there's a murder, somebody in the story had to have killed them. If there's a robbery, somebody in the story had to have stolen it. You get the idea. Once you've read enough mysteries, the only thing that can really surprise you is either A, how unsurprising the solution turned out to be, or B, how interestingly the author was able to combine the familiar elements and ideas into something that seems new enough. What makes a mystery truly memorable, what makes readers come back to the story again and again, is not likely to be your plot. So when you have a book like The Plot, that posits this idea that all it takes to get a best-selling mystery slash thriller is a shocking plot twist, then as a connoisseur of mysteries from a young age, I have to ask, really? Because in my opinion, I don't find it particularly believable. And in particular, I don't believe that a shocking plot twist alone is going to guarantee you a Steven Spielberg movie and a spot in Oprah's book club. And yes, both of those things do happen in this book. Also, can I just say that as an author, I find it hilarious that a guy who has written nothing but literary fiction his entire life could suddenly, without any practice, write a best-selling thriller. Writing literary fiction and writing thrillers are two completely different skill sets. And yes, I do realize that the book itself is a literary thriller, so the two genres can intersect. But Jacob's thriller in the book is definitely implied to be more of a conventional thriller. So I guess I just find this situation funny as someone who is very aware of the kind of snobbishness that exists within the literary fiction community when it comes to genre fiction or as they would call it commercial fiction or airport fiction. Honestly, there are dozens and dozens of derisory ways that the more uptight people in the literary world refer to the kind of books that people like me write. And I find it funny, but also a tiny bit hurtful because I do actually put some thought and care into my books, you know? But anyway, we're not here to discuss my feelings. I'm not going to 
turn this into an impromptu therapy session. So let's move on. While we're talking about books and plots, I do want to expand on this discussion to include books in general and not just mysteries. And yes, in this discussion, I am going to be talking about commercial fiction or airport books or whatever you want to call it because literary fiction in general is more interested in what other people in literary fiction think than in sales. But authors like me, I mean, we're mostly concerned with those shiny dollar signs, am I right? And I mean, can you blame us? I mean, we're trying to make a living here. (laughs) Okay, so books and plots. From my perspective as both a reader and a writer, I feel like sometimes authors place an undue amount of emphasis on plots and finding good plots and developing good plots and so on. Obviously, in fiction and especially in genre fiction, plots are important. I'm definitely not going to deny that. But at the same time, what books like The Plot show us is that too many times as authors, we think, if only I could come up with a plot as original as that author or a plot as appealing as that author, then my book would sell. Then I'd get to be rich and famous. And somewhere along the way, we forget that what drew us into books originally was characters we related to or places we wanted to visit or worlds that we wanted to explore. So while I don't really agree with the idea presented to us in the plot, I do think it opens up some interesting discussions when it comes to mysteries and plots and most of all the importance of balance. Even in genres like mysteries and thrillers where gripping and groundbreaking plots often seem to be the key to success, we need to remember that the other elements are often just as crucial when it comes to the actual reading experience. And now that I've gone over all of that, I do want to give some of my other thoughts on this book as well, because I definitely had a lot of thoughts when I finished it. For a book called The Plot, it's kind of ironic that The Plot was definitely not what kept me reading. It's a bit slow moving in the beginning, and then By the time we got to the middle and things started picking up, I had already guessed all of the plot twists. I would not be brave enough to write a book called The Plot precisely because of the kind of criticism I'm about to give, but I really didn't find the plot all that compelling. And that includes like the plot to the book that um, our protagonist writes, like the plot that is apparently worth dying for? Anyway, however, what I did find compelling is this book's style. It's been a while since a book had a voice that really pulled me in, but this book absolutely did. It's funny and cynical and definitely helps to keep the book moving even when nothing's really happening. Honestly, honestly, my favorite parts of the book were the opening chapters when Jacob's teaching at this failing MFA program and he's dealing with all of these students he hates and it's just hilarious. I loved it. 
I would absolutely read a book that was just about a failed writer teaching at a terrible MFA program, even though I do realize it would probably get very depressing very quickly. I also found the character of Jacob really fun to read about in the way that only characters you don't really like are fun to read about. Maybe I was supposed to find Jacob a sympathetic character, but to me personally, it definitely tracked that he had no friends and was just this kind of loser character. And I really loved it. Sometimes it's fun to read about characters that you can maintain some emotional distance from, particularly when those characters are just making absolute messes out of their lives. And this was definitely one of those times. I'm not sure that anything I've said so far qualifies as a glowing recommendation, but I did really enjoy this book. It's tied with The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle for the book I most enjoyed out of all the books we're talking about on this episode, and that is high praise. I personally would not call the plot a staying up until 2am book, but that might just be me since I figured out everything pretty quickly and then after that I was just along for the ride. However, if you're a fan of this kind of snarky, sarcastic, cynical writing style and some truly memorable characters, then I think you'll probably like this book as much as I did. Okay, so up next we have The Woman in the Library by Sulari Gentil. Gentil? Gentil. Sorry, I, I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly and I did try to look it up, but I couldn't find a definitive pronunciation, so apologies to this author. Anyway, this is a fairly new release. It came out in 2022 and it's a pretty straightforward murder mystery. A woman dies in a library and one of the four main characters killed her. Like I said, pretty simple. Or is it? No, it is. I was being dramatic. However, while the actual mystery is pretty straightforward, what makes this book stand out and the reason it's in this episode is its framing device. Essentially, the author who is writing the mystery we're reading, Hannah, not the actual author, like I said, it's just a framing device, but purportedly the mystery we are reading is being written by an author named Hannah and she's sending out every chapter she writes to her critique partner Leo. So at the end of every chapter we get Leo's feedback and without spoiling too much as the book progresses so does the meta-narrative in the framing device as we learn more about Leo and Hannah and their relationship. This meta-narrative isn't particularly deep and amounts to more of a subplot than anything else, which is a little disappointing if I'm being honest, particularly since Hannah herself never really responds to what Leo says except in the text itself. If this were a different kind of book, I can see how this kind of framing device could get really interesting. For example, if Hannah and Leo engaged in conversations where they talk not only about the book itself, but also the mystery writing process in general, then we could get some really interesting back and forth since they clearly have different perspectives when it comes to writing, and I imagine that they probably have different reading preferences as well. 
And I do realize this could get kind of tedious for the people who are reading it just for the whodunit, but I don't imagine that those kinds of people are interested in the meta narrative anyway, despite the author's attempts to make the framing device interesting to those people as well. Because here's the thing, right? The framing device is trying to be two things at the same time. It's trying to be commentary on the story and the process of writing the story. But at the same time, it's also trying to be a story of its own. And if I'm being honest, I do think that this attempt at being two things at the same time weakens the meta narrative overall. And here's why. Around halfway through the book, the framing device takes this turn into almost becoming a mystery of its own. And if you haven't read the book, you have no idea how hard I am trying not to spoil things right now. But anyway, the framing device essentially becomes divorced from the actual murder mystery. And because the only real insight we get into the world outside of the story is through Leo's emails, which is a really limited perspective, I don't think that this turn that the framing device takes is particularly well executed. It's kind of exciting when you're reading through the book because you're like, oh, right, Hannah and Leo are real people with their own lives too. But then you get to the end of the book and you're just kind of like, wait, that's it? And that's not a failing on the author's part per se. It's mostly just due to the limitations of this particular framing device. Honestly, I think that the way you could play into this particular framing device's strengths are by having, as I said earlier, interesting conversations between Hannah and Leo on the nature of the story itself and mystery writing conventions in general. And what's so frustrating personally is that Leo does kind of bring up these topics from time to time, but because Hannah doesn't respond except within the text, and because of what we learn about Leo himself, it's not really possible to go any deeper into what he says. And honestly, I can imagine that there were probably people who just skipped over the framing device when they were reading the book and just focused on the actual mystery itself. Speaking of the actual mystery itself, I did find it a lot of fun to read. We have a dead person and four people who could have killed her, and we spend the book finding out who did it. And if you like these kinds of mysteries, then I think you'll have as much fun as I did. Honestly, I had narrowed down the suspect list to two people about halfway through the book, and then the rest of the time I kept going back and forth in my head as to which one was the actual killer. And then when I was about three chapters away from the ending, I was like, okay, I really have to pick a single suspect now. And I did, and I was right. So that was really fun. I do want to point out two other things though. One is that as I got towards the end, there became like a lot of typos. Like I try to be very lenient about typos since, you know, I do put out books of my own and I recognize that I don't always catch all of my typos 
yeah so in general I do try to like be like well one or two once in a while isn't that bad but with this book towards the end like they became very noticeable like they kind of piled up and I was just like what is what is going on here did did only like the first half of the book get edited I don't know but anyway so if you're if you're the kind of person who cares about that kind of thing that might be distracting for you and then what was really confusing to me though the second thing was the actual ending of the book itself it kind of ends on this cliffhanger moment and I was like oh am I reading a series right now because, you know, mysteries these days are often series, which is fine. But then I got to the end and they had this like little conversation with the author, which seems to be a trend with books, which is really interesting. I do like it. But the author specifically mentions that it's a standalone. And I was like, but then what was that cliffhanger moment at the end? I don't know. It's just kind of confusing for me. But anyway, I did have a great time reading this book, even if it wasn't particularly groundbreaking or twisty or overly surprising. And I would rate it a staying up until 2am book, if only because there is that additional storyline going on in the meta narrative as well. So there's a lot to keep your attention focused on finishing the book. All right, and then finally, we have The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. It was released in 2018, and I just want to say at this point that if you have not read this book and you like mysteries, even a tiny bit, I am begging you to go read this book. I'm not going to give any major spoilers. I'm really only going to be talking about the premise of the book, but honestly, this book is just the best. If you go in blind, I went into it without even reading the premise and it was amazing. I don't say this very often and I probably won't say this very often in the future, but I was blown away by this book in every way and I really, really, really want everyone who considers themselves to be a mystery lover to go read this book. Okay, if you're listening, then I'm assuming you've read the book and are ready to talk about it. And that's very exciting because I am honestly dying to talk about this book with somebody, but I know literally nobody else who has read it. And so here we are. The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle is a lot of things. It's a murder mystery, obviously, but it's also got elements of time travel and sci-fi and all kinds of things that you wouldn't think belong in a murder mystery, but they do when you have a story as unique as this one. And when I say unique, and if you've read this book, then you probably think that what I mean is like the body swapping and the other weird stuff that happens. But actually, what I'm talking about, especially in the context of this particular episode, is not those elements at all. What I'm actually talking about is the reader's experience while reading this book, and in particular, the commentary that that reading experience offers in the wider context of the mystery genre. Now, I've already gone into detail about the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and what I'm going to be talking about here on my Substack. 
And there will be a link to the Substack post I'm talking about in the episode description if you want my in-depth thoughts on this book and its uniqueness. But on here, I'll essentially be giving an abridged version of my thoughts as well as some additional discussions that I think relate to the topic we're discussing today. Again, if you're still interested in the topic beyond what I say here, feel free to check out the link. So in my opinion, what makes the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle such good meta-commentary on the mystery genre centers around two things. The first thing is the body swapping. If you read the book, then you knew that I was going to talk about this. Essentially, our protagonist is trapped in Blackheath, which is this mansion, and he has seven days to figure out who killed Evelyn Hardcastle. Each day, he gets to inhabit the body of a different person in the mansion, and these different perspectives help him find out what actually happened. Here is why this is so cool as a reader. We often get the same scenes essentially repeated from different perspectives, which not only gives us new insight into what's actually been going on, but we also get multiple chances to notice all of the important clues that are going to help us figure out the mystery. Also, because our protagonist is just as in the dark as we are about what happened or what's going on, there's this sense of exploration, of possibility, of the protagonist essentially being an audience avatar in this incredibly twisted place. It feels kind of like a video game at times with the protagonist testing out the limits of the world and making decisions that were either like, yes, I would do that or maybe don't do that. But, and here's where we lead into our second thing, the protagonist isn't just solving this murder for the sake of solving a mystery. We find out very quickly that there's a greater purpose for whatever's going on here. And here's why this is so clever. This added dimension to the story forces the audience, who's very involved in the protagonist's quest to solve the mystery, it forces those very invested readers to sit down and think about what exactly we're doing here in the first place. Why do we read these mysteries? Why do we get so invested? Do we care about victims or do we only care about who done it? Do we have healthy ideas of justice and morality? What kind of mindset should we have when we read these types of books? And is our collective obsession with finding out who done it a good thing in the first place? It's just really clever how the author is able to implicitly raise these kinds of questions due to the structural foundations of the book. And speaking of the structural foundations, I cannot imagine how insanely difficult it was to craft this book and pull together all of these minute details. Honestly, even if you don't like mysteries, you should read this book just to admire how much of a work of art it is. But obviously, I do love mysteries, so I'm biased. But overall, it's just been so long since I was absolutely blown away by a mystery and the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle blew every expectation I had right out of the water. I had so much fun reading this book and obviously 
given everything I've said up to this point, I would absolutely certify it as a staying up until 2 a.m. book. If I get to be a little opinionated, um, it's my favorite book that I covered in this episode. I know I said earlier it's tied with the plot, but I, I wasn't being entirely truthful. This is absolutely number one, and it's honestly one of my favorite books that I've read so far this year. It was an absolute blast, and I really, really can't speak highly enough of it in terms of sheer creativity. If you know of any similarly really cool mysteries, please let me know. Or just good mysteries in general. I love the genre, but it can honestly be really hard to find mysteries that actually keep me guessing or where I don't figure out the killer pretty quickly. And also, I feel like there are way more thrillers getting published than mysteries, although that may just be my um, book recommendations. Anyway, regardless, I love mysteries, I want to read more good ones, and I have a lot of trouble finding them, so please let me know if you do have suggestions, especially more recent suggestions. Okay, so those are the three mysteries with meta elements that I wanted to cover this week and what I think these books contribute to both the mystery genre and our conversations surrounding the mystery genre. In general, I do really love books with meta elements, but only when they actually have something to say. In a future episode, I'll be covering Romances Getting Meta, but after that, I'm open to all kinds of genres getting meta, so feel free to give me some recommendations if you have any good, I don't know, meta thrillers or meta historical fiction or meta sci-fi or whatever other meta genre books exist. All right, that's everything for this episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, I hope you have a great week, and happy book travels! (laughs) 